everyone. Welcome to Febrile, a cultured podcast about all things infectious disease. We use consult questions to dive into ID, clinical reasoning, diagnostics, and antimicrobial management. I'm Sarah Dong, your host and a MedPeds ID doc. Happy 2024. I'm glad to have you here to kick off our fourth season. I am really looking forward to you hearing this episode. So let's meet our host for today, Dr. Sarah Silverberg. Hi, I'm Sarah Silverberg, and I'm a Pediatric Infectious Diseases Fellow at SickKids in Toronto. Sarah is joined by Dr. Ian Kitai. Hi, I'm Ian Kitai. I'm the Tuberculosis Specialist in the Division of Infectious Disease at SickKids in Toronto. Ian trained in medicine in South Africa, in pediatrics in the UK, and in pediatric infectious diseases in Toronto. Uh, so before we get to the case, Febrile is everyone's favorite cultured podcast. So we kick off the episode uh, by having our guests share some culture. So that can really be anything that brought you happiness or joy recently. Uh, Sarah, I'll start with you. So something that brought me a lot of joy as I was studying for my licensing exams was a band called Wolfpack, and I'm finally getting to see them live this week for the first time. Very nice. <laughs> You'll have to report back on how it was. <laughs> Uh, how about you, Ian? Uh, I'm a little more serious, but I'm mindful uh, uh, of many famous people who died of tuberculosis. One of them is George Orwell, uh, whose writing still, I think, uh, uh, I find uh, really insightful. Uh, one of his hallmarks was clear-sightedness, uh, just reporting things as they were, but also uh, a real concern for the everyday person who's particularly affected by TB. Love it. All right. Well, Sarah is in charge and is going to take us into the case. Thanks, Sarah. So our case starts out with an 11-year-old boy who was previously healthy, who presented with around four weeks of periodic fevers, some ongoing abdominal pain, anorexia, lethargy, and was starting to lose some weight. So he was initially seen in the emergency department for these ongoing abdominal pains and fevers, had some screening blood work done, and ultimately he was discharged home from the emergency department. But he returned a couple uh, days later with progressively worsening symptoms, worsening abdominal pain, and was ultimately admitted to the hospital ward with plans for ongoing imaging um, and to try to investigate what was going on with his fevers. In the emergency department, he had um, a chest x-ray that was done, which suggested some mediastinal lymphadenopathy. He had normal blood counts, though had a little bit of a mild hypochromic anemia and some mild lymphopenia. He had a C-reactive protein of 12 milligrams per liter. He had normal renal function and normal liver enzymes, and he had blood and urine cultures that were drawn. So the next morning when he was in hospital, he had an abdominal ultrasound, which showed some mesenteric lymphadenopathy, a few focal hypoechoic lesions throughout the spleen parenchyma. They were measuring around 0.5 centimeters, and there was a little bit of peritoneal thickening noted as well. So I wanted to maybe kick us off and ask if um, Dr. Katai, you could share with us your differential diagnosis at this point and what additional information you would want to know. So thank you. Um, I, th I think the differential diagnosis is broad at this time. In the hospital, I work with the periodic fever, uh, anorexia, abdominal pain, and weight loss uh, 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 with some mesenteric notes would make me still worry about inflammatory bowel disease, and that would be certainly high in the differential. But there are other things here that really don't fit completely. The mediastinal nodes, if they're truly there, uh, 
are worrying, the splenic lesions are worrying. Um, and so, uh, again, uh, lymphoma might come into the differential, but uh, um, certainly infection, particularly tuberculosis, would be high on my differential. I, I have a, my own slant being a tuberculosis doctor, so I think that's... Uh, um, uh, but all of those things uh, would be things to consider. And, of course, um, uh, the possibilities would, uh, and how I prioritize them, would depend a lot on some other history, especially epidemiology uh, uh, and a few more, uh, more things about the imaging and uh, the characteristics. I should... Uh, tangentially say that lymphopenia is quite common in children and adolescents with TB. It's also true with uh, adults. You don't have to be HIV positive to have lymphopenia. Um, and uh, the hypoechogenic, if there is hypoechogenic uh, lymphadenopathy, and certainly the hypoechogenic uh, lesions in the spleen would make me think of infection. Great. So we went on to collect some of that additional history that you alluded to. We found out that this kid was born in Pakistan. He moved to Canada around age two and had last traveled back to Pakistan around 1.5 years ago for around two months over the school holidays. And his parents had had chest x-rays on immigration to Canada, but as a young child, he had not. There were no known TB contacts at the time. He is not known to be indigenous, and he does not live on a reserve or in a highly dense community setting, and he is fully vaccinated up to date with the Canadian schedule. He did receive a BCG vaccination as a child in Pakistan, and he has a two-year-old sibling at home. So like you said before, you were concerned about TB, and although this febrile podcast has discussed TB before, we haven't focused so much on the diagnosis in children. So I was wondering whether you could tell us a little bit about the epidemiology and the impact of TB in children. Um, so thank you. And this would very much depend on where you are. In Canada, um, and, and by children, we're talking about those under 50. Um, uh, that's the WHO definition. So it includes some young adolescents. In Canada, um, there are really two discrete groups uh, who have most TB in that age group. The first would be the foreign-born or the children of foreign-born parents. And uh, the, the foreign-born may be acquiring TB in the country of origin as infection and developing disease uh, when coming to Canada, or in fact, traveling back to the country of origin and... Um, and, and then acquiring it during that travel, or from a source case within Canada. But uh, to kind of the shame, really, of Canada, in fact, over 55% of TB is, in fact, in Indigenous Canadians, predominantly northern regions in small uh, communities. Um, you know, I think the situation in the United States would be different, where a foreign birth, uh, either parents or the child, would be the predominant uh, risk factors for t for tuberculosis. Um, uh, one one thing I'll allude to with some recent work uh, we've done is uh, is that uh, in our program at Sick Kids, uh, about one fifth overall of the cases of TB disease we manage are related to travel, uh, and that includes people who've had post immigration travel. 
Uh, and uh, that, it's in fact one third of those who do not have a domestic source case within Canada. So that travel history is actually of, to me, significant importance, uh, especially because most disease is going to develop within two years of infection. And so uh, his immigration at the age of 12 may not be as relevant as his uh, travel one and a half years ago. Uh, the the other thing I'll, of course, mention is that looking for the source case within Canada, within the fa ex family or extended family, also becomes important if this is TB. Um, so so um, one other thing I will mention is, as of today, at the time of this recording, we have access now the, to the 2023 WHO Global TB Report. And so, you know, we're still dealing with over 10 million cases of adults and children with TB. But there are an estimated 1.2 million uh, uh, children, that is people under 15, with tuberculosis every year in uh, in 2022. Um, that um, there are probably 600 deaths per day in that group of TB, and most critically, 96% of those children and adolescents have not accessed TB treatment or diagnostics at all. So our follow-up question is, what testing would you want to evaluate for a diagnosis of TB in a child like this? I, I think we, we can look at uh, imaging and we can look at culture and we can look at tests of infection and we should do them uh, in uh, order of importance. To me, the most uh, important uh, set of tests, if you suspect disease, is get cultures. Um, get material for culture, and and um, and so w there is pathology in the spleen which would be difficult to access. There is uh, we know pathology in the abdomen, and probably more imaging of the abdomen will help us know better whether there are places to sample. There are the mediastinal nodes, and if there is intrathoracic disease, then it's definitely worth trying to get cultures uh, of respiratory specimens. This could be by way of induced sputa using three or five percent saline to, and and someone to coach that child to cough, and that has been successful uh, in our uh, clinic in people as young as seven. Um, gastric aspirates are, not, are an alternative or an additional way of trying to get that culture, and then um, uh, beyond that, especially given abdominal considerations, there's increasing focus in the world on stool as a diagnostic test. Stool, rarely with gene expert or another nucleic acid amplification test. Of course, stool is very easy to get. It's non-invasive. Uh, in small children using, for instance, gene expert or the expert ultra, which the WHO advises, the yield may be 50% of a respiratory culture, but it's a lot easier to get, and then you have a diagnosis, uh, and in fact, a bacteriologic diagnosis with with some sensitivity information. So those are uh, some of the uh, ways I would go. Um, uh, urine can also be sent. We forget to send urine, and it certainly is sometimes positive. Uh, but uh, given uh, the intra-abdominal disease, I would like to, to get better imaging of what's going on there. That may include a CT. We're always mindful of doing CTs. So that if, for instance, an induced sputum 
with smear positive and PCR positive, I might not go after anything else. We could avoid the radiation unless it was going to change management in some other way and uh, perhaps do an MRE if I wanted to uh, to look at the terminal ileum or other places. Um, but some sort of abdominal imaging, I would say, would be worthwhile. The other thing we would consider is tests for infection. Um, and I want to put that in perspective. It's worth remembering that 10 to 30% of children with proven TB disease have negative tests for infection. By test for infection, I mean either a tuberculin skin test or an interferon gamma release assay. Uh, in this child who's had BCG, uh, an interferon gamma release assay would be much preferred. Uh, you would be much more certain of the results. You would also have a, a mitogen value to tell you that the child could actually respond uh, with a, uh, uh, with an immunologic response to a non-specific mitogen. So I'd do that, but I'd always put this in perspective um, uh, that that I put that as the third tier of things. A negative IGRA wouldn't make me change my mind about pursuing those cultures. Um, the other reason why you might want that no disease given the splenic lesions, the intrathoracic lymphadenopathy, is to rule out other things such as lymphoma. I would also add that a standard of care for uh, children with proven TB disease for anyone in the world is to do HIV serology. Uh, this is partly because it, it would affect how we would manage the patient. And of course, TB is an opportunistic infection, it was one of the first opportunistic infections to declare itself at the beginning of the AIDS uh, epidemic. So it's worth remembering that. And of course, the lymphopenia would make me again want to get that out of the way. Though I would counsel parents that this is just routine. I'm wondering how any of this would change if there were concerns in this patient for TB meningitis. So um, TB meningitis, I, I think, is worth thinking about almost separately, although certainly you can have people who have TB meningitis and TB elsewhere. Um, and I think for those of us who used to bacterial meningitis with a few days of high fever and a stiff neck, it's really important to say that TB meningitis in young children is a different sort of disease. Its presentation is indolent. It's often slow. It may present with headache. It may present with behavior change. It often takes, especially in low burden settings, weeks uh, to make a diagnosis uh, because of this nonspecific presentation. So I definitely would be concerned about uh, a severe headache, especially in the context of that fever, worsening headache, behavior change. Should there be imaging, um, hydrocephalus becomes very important in that imaging. Um, and one thing I would say for, for a North American audience uh, or uh, an uh, audience in uh, uh, countries with resources is that CTs may be done. And if you don't do enhancement with the CT, you may miss TB meningitis uh, because what you're really looking for is leptomeningeal enhancement, which is one of the hallmarks of, of TB meningitis. Um, he is 11 years old now. In most parts of the world and in most of the literature, TB meningitis is disproportionately found in younger children. That's one of the reasons we really take young children who are exposed to TB seriously. Interestingly, in a cross-Canada survey uh, of TB, we found uh, 
that uh, there was more meningitis in the uh, 10 to 15 year olds than there was in the in the smaller children for perhaps a bunch of reasons and interestingly many of those uh, uh, children and adolescents were in fact of indigenous descent so that's something to look at it can happen at any age but i think the the important things i have a strong suspicion for tb meningitis if this young man had a severe headache as part of his presentation neuroimaging by way of mr with gadolinium would be my preferred choice, and then uh, a, a lumbar puncture. How would CNS findings like that leptomeningeal enhancement on a CT change your management of this child? So whether it's this child or any child, if there is suspected TB meningitis, that is an emergency in tuberculosis management. And so you want to very rapidly get uh, diagnostic tests, but then you very rapidly want to institute treatment. TB meningitis um, uh, has as one of its uh, pathogenesis hallmarks uh, a vasculitis that may lead to small or big strokes. There may be basal arachnoiditis that has many other manifestations. And in fact, the, the overall outlook, there's a great uh, a systematic review by uh, Sylvia Chang and others uh, some years ago, is really lousy that most people don't uh, survive intact. Uh, there is a lot of resultant disability. So, so uh, if I suspected TB meningitis, if we saw leptomeningeal enhancement and provided with safe, we would try and get as much CSF as possible for TB culture. If we didn't have another source for culture, especially, um, we would expect uh, an exudate with a, a very high protein and a low glucose we would not expect to see acid fast bacilli. This is often porcy bacillary in the fluid. And we would hope for a positive PCR. But even if negative, if there's strong clinical suspicion for TB meningitis, uh, we uh, should immediately start empiric treatment. The, the uh, addition is that's uh, right at the beginning of treatment would be corticosteroids, typically dexamethasone. Um, this has been shown to reduce mortality in, in the, the big study in Vietnam. Uh, there, there are less strong data for reducing morbidity and developmental concerns, but there's probably some effect. But, but this is an emergency, and uh, do not ponder or think too long about that diagnosis. Get the CSF off immediately or the, the other cultures off and start. Uh, I think the one last tangent, how does TB in the young child differ from adult disease or even from what we see in adolescents? Right. So I tell my adult respirology and uh, infectious disease uh, colleagues that they're often, that they're spoiled really, uh, because uh, uh, they can get a diagnosis quickly. Um, a lot of adults and adolescent TB is pulmonary, not just intrathoracic where in young children, it's in the notes, it's pulmonary, it's in the lungs, and people are coughing up sputum. You can get that sputum, you can stain it, you can uh, get a PCR on it, you can make a bacteriologic diagnosis quickly. In addition, you have, you have a marker for success in treatment because those sputum smears turn negative, cultures turn negative. So, so that's very easy. TB in young children is a different disease. It's often a porcy bacillary disease. If it's intrathoracic, which it often is, it's really 
usually in lymph nodes, in intrathoracic lymph nodes, not in the parenchyma. So we are often lucky to grow one mycobacterium from a gastric aspirate or something in those child, children to make the diagnosis. And then, of course, in the very young child, TB meningitis has a much higher propensity to become miliary, uh, a particular sort of disseminated TB, or uh, to become uh, or to, to involve the meninges. Or, um, so CNS-TB is much more common. Um, this is especially in children uh, under four years of age and very especially under those less than one. The other um, thing really to remember about TB in the very young child is that it is a sentinel event. If this is a young child in a, in a country such as Canada or a country such as the U.S. who has developed uh, severe, t uh, who has TB disease, um, that really says the child has acquired the TB from someone and there is an urgency to find the index uh, adult or adolescent with uh, pulmonary disease who will give the young child that, who or who has given the young child that TB. Um, the uh, The a uh, general rule is that young children do not give TB to others because of the palsy bacillary nature of TB. There are rare exceptions where a child, for instance, has multi-bacillary disease or even cavitary disease at a young age and could transmit to others if they have sufficient cough. But in general, if you see the young child with TB, you have to ask, where did it come from? Uh, the strength of the TB program where I work in uh, Toronto, is that we have an excellent public health service so that uh, they are finding the very young contacts. They're getting to them to us for uh, counseling, for evaluation as to whether they have early disease or infection, uh, or in fact, whether they need to go on window or gap prophylaxis. And by doing that, we see almost none of what I saw far too much of in Africa, which was young children highly damaged by TB or with end-stage uh, uh, forms of TB. So getting back to the case, we got a CT of the chest and the abdomen of this young man, and the CT confirmed thickened thickening of the terminal ileum and hypoechogenic nodes, as well as some peritoneal thickening. And the clinical team ended up consulting our surgical colleagues to try to sample some of the nodes. So absolutely, I think um, uh, you have to go where the money is, and the money is in the abdomen with those hypoechogenic nodes. Certainly sense stool, but probably to get treatment started, you'd want to, um, to sample one of those nodes, partly for histology so that you rule out other things which are less likely. Um, uh, certainly, if you saw good granulomatous inflammation, including caseous uh, granulomatous inflammation, you'd be pretty happy you were dealing with a mycobacterial uh, disease, very likely TB in that epidemiologic context. Um, and then you would hope to uh, then have as many specimens cooking for culture as you can, um, and then you could uh, start uh, treatment for TB. Um, and And this sort of case illustrates uh, TB as the great mimicker of many things. 
if people ask me, can TB cause, I don't wait for the next word. I usually say yes. Um, uh, and uh, there are some things it's more likely to cause than others. But ileal TB, I, the, you know, abdominal TB has various forms uh, that sometimes are discrete and sometimes aren't. They include peritoneal TB, uh, either wet or dry, uh, ascites, in otherwise involvement of the peritoneum as peritoneal TB with thickening of the peritoneum, sometimes a plastic peritonitis. And then finally, ileocolic TB or intestinal TB. The ileocolic region is the most common area that is involved. So um, uh, it certainly can mimic uh, inflammatory bowel disease. And of course, the treatments are very different. Uh, you do not want to put this child on infliximab, uh, as it may well uh, activate TB in a terrible way. Um, and so it's really important to make that diagnosis. Um, so definitely, I would say um, sampling of those notes would be very helpful for a number of reasons. And then if everything points to TB, instituting therapy would be uh, then important. Excellent. So exactly like you just said, this patient was started on quadruple therapy with rifampin, isoniazid, pyrazinamide, and ethambutol, as well as pyridoxine and vitamin D per national uh, Canadian TB standards. and like you said before, the focus was really on trying to get that microbiological sample in order to get sensitivities from the organism. And we were able to get some preliminary information uh, through our HANE. Um, but in other settings, I understand that you could get it through an, a gene expert or, or some of the other uh, NAT panels. So I thought maybe we could finish off and see whether there are any other important pearls that you've learned that you wanted to share with us about caring for pediatric patients with TB? I wanted firstly to get back to this case because we often in infectious disease think, oh, we've got the diagnosis, you're on the right treatment, everything's going to be fine, they're there. So it's worth remembering that complications happen for a bunch of reasons. Um, so one would be uh, this child has intestinal TB and we're treating him with oral drugs. Um, in our uh, program, we would try hard to get drug levels to ensure there's adequate absorption of those drugs in the face of intestinal TB. The second is there's ileocolic disease or there's ileal disease, and there's a, a real chance we've seen it a couple of times of a stricture in that area, which may develop over time with adequate treatment and may need its own amelioration. So that has to be anticipated. And then it's worth remembering that 10 to 14% of HIV-negative immunocompetent children will deteriorate while on appropriate treatment, something we would call a paradoxical reaction or an immune reconstitution reaction. It's always worth looking out for those things. Sometimes uh, they need corticosteroids to ameliorate the inflammation. So um, just because we've got a diagnosis and we have the right treatment, even if it's sensitive, we need very close monitoring, especially in states like this. And I'm certainly aware of adults with uh, intestinal TB who have developed acquired drug resistance because, in fact, their drug levels uh, in their blood were inadequate uh, to prevent uh, TB. But I want to talk more generally about how to manage TB. And I think uh, this is definitely a disease where you shouldn't try and do it at home or in your private office. This requires a team. 
And, you know, we have our own segments of the team. I'm privileged to work with uh, uh, at SickKids, which includes uh, a wonderful uh, and extremely conscientious nurse practitioner. It includes an, a, a social worker embedded in our clinic. We have to remember William Osler's famous words that TB is a social disease with a medical aspect. Um, uh, and, and certainly uh, uh, that social worker is extremely valuable. It includes someone from Toronto Public Health, and we include all the other public health units, who is in fact a liaison uh, nurse within our clinic who is taking information back to the case managers, because public health is an integral part of the management of this patient. They're going to do the directly observed therapy or supervision of therapy. Many of our patients do not have English as their first language, and for, from a uh, an equity and other point of view, the ability to access the system in a timely way becomes very, very important. So part of that team includes regular, easy access to translation services. But we find that, for instance, a directly observed th a therapy worker who's in the home is picking up toxicities well before the next clinic visit and often saving the child a, a lot of morbidity and po possibly mortality. So... There are many aspects of TB that go way beyond the clinician uh, and that are really crucial to successful completion of, uh, of that therapy. And of course, public health, if they're doing the contact tracing right, will now be getting the parent screen, the extended family screen, so that perhaps we find that it, that uh, smoldering case, there is increasing um, focus on what's called subclinical TB in the world, the people who sort of waft in and out of immunologic control but may actually have the ability to transmit TB in a significant, insignificant numbers in the world. So to find the, the case who doesn't have to be very, very, very sick um, and, and really to, to close the loop so that we're not going to see anyone else sick with this disease. You mentioned there was a two-year-old at home, and certainly that two-year-old would be someone we would bring in at the next clinic visit once uh, for screening by way of an IGRA, uh, uh, chest X-ray, clinical evaluation. Um, if the if uh, if the index case had uh, a positive uh, a respiratory isolate, we would also consider that two-year-old for what's called window or gap prophylaxis, even if the first set of uh, if the first set of uh, tests, including an IGRA, were negative, we would keep that child on on treatment for TB infection until at least eight or ten weeks after the last contact with the index case when infectious, and and repeat that IGRA just to make sure that it's negative before discontinuing. Thanks again to Sarah and Ian for joining Febrile and creating this amazing episode. I really wanted us to emphasize the differences related to epidemiology and clinical manifestations and diagnosis of TB in children. Hopefully, loyal listeners caught the recent Curious Congenital Conundrums Part 2 from the fall, but I encourage you to check out February episode number 79, if you haven't, where Amadine Duray and Liz Whitaker discussed neonatal TB, which is a really great complement to this episode. And for those non-pediatricians, you may want to listen to episode number 29 with Ali Mendoza and John Wilson on a case of disseminated TB in the setting of HIV infection. 
Don't forget to check out the website, febrilepodcast.com, where you find the consult notes, which are written supplements to the show with links to references, our library of ID infographics, and a link to our merch store. Please reach out if you have any suggestions for future shows or want to be more involved with Febrile. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and I'll see you next time.